1: Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Anne Hutchins.
2: Good morning and welcome to Money in Your Life, a weekly show about the influence of money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins.
3: And I'm Brian Farr.
2: You know, Brian, Lewis Carroll once said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. This you know, this quote really struck me as particularly relevant to the subject of financial intelligence, because without it, it's really easy to lose direction and you can be at risk of being taken advantage of. But with financial intelligence, you can develop a map and a story that can put you on the road that suits your particular journey.
3: Yeah, I agree, Anne. I, um Financial intelligence is important for individuals, families, and businesses. It's just become so clear to me over the years. Much of my initial work with clients is focused on creating clarity around the financial numbers. and Then people can use those numbers to tell a more accurate story about the present and a more exciting story about the future.
2: Yeah, that's really right. Well, today our guest is Joe Knight, co-author of Financial Intelligence for Entrepreneurs, among other books. And my favorite book that he's co-authored that he's written is a graphic novel about financial intelligence. Joe's a CFO and senior consultant at Setpoint, U- Setpoint Companies, and he's also the owner of the Business Literacy Institute. He speaks and consults with businesses and is, by his own admission, a storyteller. So let's learn from his stories about how to get comfortable with the numbers. And welcome, Joe Knight. Joe, welcome. Thank you
4: very much. Appreciate it, Brian and Ann.
2: Welcome. Uh, my first question to you is, what is financial intelligence and why is it different than financial literacy?
4: Well, I, in some ways, it's semantics, but, but let, me, let me explain how I look at financial intelligence and kind of how we, we came upon that topic. Uh, I, I got involved in, in, uh, in, in teaching and training people and helping people learn about finance in a very small manufacturing company that is now the company introduced Setpoint Companies, and, and it's a larger company now, but at the time, it was a, a 6 employee company started by two engineers. And uh, these two engineers had worked for a private company for several years, and they were smart guys, but they didn't understand finance, nor were they shared, nor were any of the financials shared with them in their uh, by their employer, which of course was private, and that's fairly typical. Yeah. But they could tell by the signs in the business that things weren't going well, that the business was struggling, uh, even though they didn't have any numbers. They could just tell by the meetings and the demeanor of the management. And as things got worse and worse, they decided they had to do take action. So they quit and started this small company called Setpoint. And because of that experience, they decided that they, number one, were going to learn how to read financial statements and understand them in their own business. And then they were going to make sure their employees understood it as well because of, uh, the anxiety and the trouble it was that that they went through not understanding the numbers in their, with their former employer. Uh, well, as luck would have it, uh, one of them knew me. I was consulting at the time, having left Ford Motor Company as a financial analyst and wanting to work in small business and consult and work alone, which I enjoy more than, than the big company experience. And so mm-hmm. one of them called me into their office and, and said, uh, you know, we've got this plan to share financials with, with our employees, but our accountant that we we've hired part-time to advise us tells us that sharing financial information will only bring sorrow and it's a bad idea. And, you know, it's, we're a private company. <laughs> oh, no. and <laughs> Yeah, competitors <laughs> will find out, and it's complicated, and all this kind of stuff. And and I told them, you know, as a more of a financial analyst and coming at it from a little bit different angle, that uh, that perhaps that's a pretty good idea. And so we we started a discussion, and and uh, and and basically, uh, I remember he got up on a whiteboard and he said, you know, Joe, I don't know why you all make this complicated in finance and accounting, but when I get a PO to build an, a piece of automation equipment, what these two what these two engineers did initially is they worked for a company that designed and built roller coasters. So they had their dream <laughs> job.
0: However, <laughs>
4: the company was failing. And in fact, their, their premonition was correct. Uh, the company did go bankrupt about three or four years after they left and struggled mightily between those times. But their dream was to get back into that industry. However, initially, they started building automation equipment for man- to help companies be more efficient in their manufacturing. And uh-huh. so he said, when I get a PO for one of my automation uh, projects, I have sales, and then right below that he wrote, after I have sales, I have stuff to buy, if you can visualize that. Yeah. And then after, he after he, uh, he, said, what I do is I take my sales, I subtract all the stuff I have to buy and the people I have to pay, and the difference between those two is something that I call aggregate remainder. And he said, Joe, that is a very important number to my business. Now, remember, this is a mechanical engineer, and right. so... I said, well, you know what? It turns out that in finance and accounting, we have a name for aggregate remainder because it is a very important number. We call that number gross profit. And he said, that is so great. You guys have a name for that. Because it's very important <laughs> in my business. And so yeah. that was the beginning of my expertise as a financial uh, trainer. And so what happened is I collaborated with them and helped them develop a way to track their financials in a way that made sense to them, that didn't follow what Gap Accounting the generally accepted accounting principles would follow. And then they asked me if I would develop little modules to teach them and their employees on how to read these statements that they were just learning about. And that's how I got started with uh, with bringing financial intelligence to these two uh, very intelligent and talented engineers and their staff, which at the time were four. There were six of them. Uh, and you so that's kind of how don't. this all started. It was very organic, and it was very much... Uh, and, uh, something that was that, that was very deeply desired by these two new um, entrepreneurs, wanting to understand the numbers.
2: That is so great. And you know, one of the things that you point out is that there are two operations that you just pointed out. People generally are scared of numbers because they hate math, or they think it's the the province of the accounting or finance department or they don't have time or other factors. And, in fact, the two operations that are most important are addition and subtraction. So it's pretty basic math, right?
4: Oh, and it, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, it, it's kind of funny, but when I when I train these engineers, and they're, you know, really smart guys, I, I train them, and they learn the statements. And, you know, one, one time I got done, and, and – uh, one of these two uh, one of these two founders, that, uh, and by the way, this is kind of f- funny too, but they're both named Joe. So it was the three Joes. Oh, so
1: no. One uh. of the problems
4: with growing management is it's hard to find another manager named Joe. We
0: figured it out. <laughs> anyway,
4: so the three Joes are running this small business. And by the way, just as an aside, these two engineers, we split the company, and the automation business is still thriving today in a much larger company, obviously, than then. Then, But we also have designed and built several roller coasters, and those two engineers now are back in that industry. Uh. It was involved in several projects building and designing roller coasters. Um, but but back to the point, uh as we were you know, as we were growing the business and working together, um, one of these engineers, you know, I'm in a room teaching, one of these engineers go, you know, now I understand the statements, is that all you guys do? And I go, Yeah, we, we add and subtract numbers and occasionally we divide. And uh and they you know they're saying, Well, well, when does it get more complex? And I said, Well, you know, in college, I remember this, but, you know, we don't worry about the convexity or, or the concavity of the curve or the second derivative. All we want to do in finance is make sure that the curve is going up. And we can do that with simple adding and subtracting. And that's yeah. all we do. And so, you know, the engineers all thought, boy, you know, you guys get paid for doing this kind of math? That's incredible. So, yeah. so one of the things about finance that everybody should understand is it's it's actually very simple. The way we make it complex is we use many different terms and acronyms for the same thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly right. So when you talk about financial intelligence with people, are there certain particular elements that you say, like, this is, this is why you should increase your financial intelligence?
4: Um, yeah, now, now one, one, one thing I want to make clear about what I do, and I'm very, uh, this is very specific, is I teach, our, our business, the Business Literacy Institute, teaches mainly large corporations. We teach mainly finance, non-finance executives and managers, and often finance managers as well, and we could talk about that too, it's kind of interesting, um, how to read their financial statements and how to look at them in terms of ratios and how to understand them. One mm-hmm. of the things I believe is anyone who works for a company, and I used to say for a company that's for profit, but absolutely that's not true anymore. We do a lot of training. In fact, this, the last few years we started training a lot of large not-for-profit organizations, um, no matter where you work, you need to, uh, your business or your organization needs to be profitable, and that is measured by financial statements. And mm-hmm. so I believe that everyone who works in a company that, of any kind, an organization, not-for-profit or for-profit, should be able to look at the statements of any organization and in about 10 minutes say to themselves, this company is in great shape or this company is in trouble, um, whether it's a, a customer or a vendor, a supplier to you, or your own business. You should be able to look at the statements and read them, and that's kind of that's kind of the, the driving force behind um, our book, Financial Intelligence, and the business that Karen Berman and I developed, um, the Business Literacy Institute, is 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 helping people understand how their organizations make money, and then secondarily, which is also very important, is how they impact those numbers, and what to look for in those numbers, and why they are important
3: you know joe as i hear you describe that the, the what's going to happen in those organizations is then those employees can start to have conversations they can start talking with each other talk, talk up and down the chain in a in a more uh informed way a financially intelligent way and then are going to be a, there's going to be a sense of security with that understanding a sense of connection amongst people and you're probably going to get some synergy out of it other people are going to discover things do you find you, those you know, kinds of
4: yeah, sorry to, start to jump in, but yeah, no. you couldn't be more right. I, okay. I believe, you know, our, our company, Setpoint Systems, the main manufacturing company, has been in business for 20 years now, and we've seen companies come and go in our very difficult automation industry. And at one point, about maybe five to seven years ago, when things were kind of tough and the economy was tough in this industry, my accountant, who has had worked with us for years, and by the way, who you know our tax accountant who also advises not to share numbers like most accountants do he said (laughs) you know i told my partners three times over the last you know nine or ten years i've been working with you that i thought you guys were going to fail or go out of business but you always seem to survive your costs go down you adjust quickly you're so you you uh... you adjust to the business situation so fast you must be fabulous managers and i said no no we have everybody involved in the numbers and when people understand the numbers we get what I like to call in our organization psychic ownership. They might not own shares of stock, but because they see the numbers every week and they understand them, it's their company, and they're very upset if the numbers don't look good, and they're worried. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think that sometimes it creates an, a, a fair and normal distribution of stress when the company's not performing well. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> because, because what happens is when the company's performing very poorly, I, I as an owner might be guaranteeing the credit line, and I could lose everything. Right. Um, but perhaps someone on the shop floor who's assembling while he's in college he might really enjoy the job and say this is a very high-paying great job for me and I'm kinda I have a little anxiety about having to find a different job I enjoy it so he feels a little, feels a little bit of stress and you know what I think that's okay to yeah. understand that in a business
2: mm-hmm. yeah it's something Joe that we talk about that Brian and I talk about with our clients and and the whole purpose of this show which is really sorting out responsibility and, and if you know the numbers and your impact on those numbers, then you take responsibility for them, and that's what I'm hearing you say.
4: Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, uh, at one point several years ago, when we, we actually uh, were still combining the two businesses, we had a you know an amusement park amusement park ride business and an automation business. Now they're completely separate. But we decided since we had two different teams, we would do a bonus plan. Separate between the two, mm-hmm. and so we got to the end of the year, and the automation business had a tremendous year and was making a, a pretty large bonus for the group. However, the entertainment the amusement part business had had a very difficult year and uh, had lost some money. And if you put the two together, we were slightly above break even. Um, and so when it came time for the bonus for the automation group, we got everybody in a room and we presented the numbers, and there was a very significant bonus. And uh, our shop manager raised his hand and he said, Joe, you know, I've, I've met with my guys in the shop and, you know, I, that was probably about 12 employees. And we kind of took a vote and we knew that we were in the bonus and we'd make some good money. But uh, we decided that because of the struggles in the other side of the business, that we would rather not take our bonus this year. Oh, wow. And I was wow. absolutely stunned. And, I, and I, I, I stopped for a minute and I said, Ken, why does that make sense to you? Why would you say that you don't own shares in this company? And he said, "I don't care. I love working here. I want to be successful. And I think if we spend the money on this bonus for this part of our organization, it will hurt the whole organization right now." And uh, and I've I've always thought about that, and that's part of why I use the word psychic ownership. Yeah. Ken was thinking like an owner, our shop manager. Yeah. Even though you, and 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 uh, by the way, we did pay the bonus. It was a commitment. We we did that. But it was kind of a shocking thing to me that they had taken a vote and decided they didn't want their bonus that year, and it was a significant amount of money for uh, these guys working in our shop. It's a very wow. interesting dynamic comes out of sharing financial information. Um, and and it, it, it creates power in an organization, and I think it also um, empowers people um, to understand their work situations, to understand um, what's going on at their work, and, and helps them be a little bit more able to understand business. And, and frankly, the people that we train and understand finance, when they go on to other jobs or graduate from college and move on, they're better employees wherever they work because they understand finance and they understand how to drive profitability or drive more success in their company through the finances.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you talked about before, which is resistance. And you talked about accountants, not counseling, sharing information. The resistance about sharing information is bound to come up both in personal situations and in business situations. how, can employees start to encourage or start to ask for information that will be relevant, or or be trained on this?
4: I, I think in in a, in a lot of companies, particularly private companies, that that's fairly difficult. A lot of uh, you know we we have a culture. The finance and accounting group has a culture of of, of uh, protection of the numbers and hiding the numbers, and and the numbers are on a need to know basis. I mean, what do we call the lead accountant in a company? We call them a controller. I control <laughs> the numbers.
3: Wow! <laughs> you are on
4: a need-to-know basis, and and you know what? We should think of ourselves as information providers because we're providing headlights and information for the business. And so there's a culture that we have to get over. I personally, maybe maybe it's because of my touch touch to all these large companies, but I think that's changing. I think you should ask your finance people for data and information relevant to your job, and put pressure on the system. And you should study and understand the finances because uh, the more you understand, the more successful the organization will be. Again, I I have a sense that that's changing, but we need to break through that culture and and break that down. There's also a lot of fear around the numbers and a lot of fear uh, in understanding the numbers. Um, So, there, you know, frankly, some people don't want to know how the company's performing. We've had that in our organization. Some people. The stress of knowing that for the last two months we lost money and we've got to turn it around is hard on some people, whereas for others it's energizing and it's enlightening and and let's find a way to solve it. So it's not for everyone. So there's a lot of different things that come out of that.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, the the again the responsibility and their different personality types want to know different things. So it's good to have everybody involved and knowing
4: the. Right. Uh, Right. I like to say in my company that, that I would rather teach my engineers and my project managers finance than have them teach me engineering. That way, <laughs> if I had to make decisions on their projects engineering-wise, it would be a disaster. But, you yeah. know, this is an easier way to go. I'll teach you finance. And you make good engineering decisions. Yeah,
3: <laughs> the, engi- the engineers do a lot more than adding and subtracting. That's Their exactly calculations right. are up, much, yeah. much more complex. Well, yeah.
4: and,
2: and you can get a lot, you can get hurt in different ways with the engineering faults.
4: No right? question.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to, we're going to take a break right now, but we'll be back with Joe Knight from Setpoint Companies after the break. You have money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co host Brian Farr. We'd love to hear from you if you would like to send us an email at moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. And you can give us a call as well. Please call 866 472 5790. You have money in your life.
4: When it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: the goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse your children or your extended family ann hutchins works with individuals families and financial professionals to improve relationships with money her work with clients is confidential honest and fun Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.bryanhfarr.com.
4: Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now toll free eight six six four seven two five seven nine oh. That's eight six six four seven two fifty seven ninety. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now back to the program.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host Brian Farr and our guest Joe Knight. And today we're talking about financial intelligence. Joe, you know, I want to follow up on the conversation that we were having before the break and talk about the difference between cash and profit. And people may think that this is only business-related, but it gets confusing personally as well. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between cash and profit and how important it is to look at cash flow.
4: Um, yeah, and I think I think. Uh, This is a very important topic and, and frankly, I'm gonna, let me, let me back up and talk about cash in the, in the marketplace. And when I say marketplace, I mean with Wall Street and with investors and those of you that are interested in stocks and understanding stock. The new cool number on Wall Street is a number we call free cash flow. Now if you go back five to seven years and you go to the dot com boom and all those kinds of things, the cool number used to be a number we call EBITDA. Yeah. Now some people think EBITDA is an obvious form of EBIT, EBITDA, but it's actually just an acronym, and it stands yeah. for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Now sometime, if we had more time, I would tell every, all your listeners about the exciting rise and fall of EBITDA as a critical metric in finance. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's always a great story for family and friends. But, what I'd like to say is EBITDA has fallen off as an important metric, and, uh, and there's two reasons why. One is, and this is a very important thing that everyone should understand when they think about finance and accounting, Um, accounting, which is financial reporting, is more of an art than a science. And a lot of people don't understand that. I think that's one of the first things that a non-finance person should understand. When you look at an income statement that shows a company's profit, that income statement is loaded with estimates and assumptions and interpretation of code to create the report. So. You know, a a financial executive or an accountant will come to you and say, these are your actuals for last month. Well, they use the word actual, but what they should say is, this is our best guess at what you made last month, but we really don't know because we had to make all kinds of estimates and assumptions to get this report done. That just doesn't sound So they say actuals, but the, the truth of the matter is there's estimates and assumptions in an income statement. And EBITDA comes from the income statement, and it's loaded with estimates and assumptions. However, a lot of people on Wall Street, a lot of investors, thought of EBITDA as an indication of cash flow. Um, But a lot, but other people were saying, you know what? I don't know if I trust EBITDA. And probably the loudest voice against the EBITDA concept was a uh, an investor that maybe, perhaps, a few of us have heard of. His name is Warren Buffett. (laughs) Yeah. And Warren (laughs) said, you know what? I don't like EBITDA that much because it's based on estimates and assumptions. What Mm -hmm. I like is Burger King Whoppers. This was several, he actually said this several years ago during the dot-com bubble when everyone was asking him why I wasn't investing. Yeah. And he said, "I like to when I look at a business, I like to figure out how much cash is available so that I can have go buy Burger King Whoppers." And uh, and uh, and so you know everybody said, "Well, that's interesting. EBITDA is an indication of future cash flow right off the income statement." And that's how a lot of people think of it. A lot of analysts is profit. This profit number will become cash flow. And Buffett said. Well, you know what? That's that's really just theoretical whoppers, and I can't eat a theoretical whopper. <laughs> I want right. real cash flow that I can eat, and so Jeez. it goes. Uh, he said, "I'm going to wait until these companies generate cash." Now, the the, the metric that that, uh, that and, and by the way, at the same time as that was going on, and people were thinking about, you know, is EBITDA really cash? We also had all the fraud cases that happened, the Enron and the Worldcoms of the World and the Tyco. By the way, Tyco International was a great client of mine for several years, so we not time for that. We could talk about some stories there. But anyway. um, (laughs) Another show. So 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 the the cash flow um, that, that came out of these businesses was the tool that we could use to grow the business. But furthermore, the thing that's interesting to a lot of analysts on Wall Street is cash is not an estimated number loaded with assumptions. It's a concrete number that's easy to verify. And so if you have cash, you know that you're going to be safe, number one. And number two, you can measure and get at that cash. Furthermore, as the financial crisis came upon us in 2008, we learned that banks weren't so excited to loan money to businesses. And by the way, I think that's still true today. It's getting better, but it's still tough to get business loans. So Wall Street and investors knew, like Buffett always knew, that companies that can generate their own cash will always be successful. We call that free cash flow. Yeah. Okay. Now, okay. this might be more than what you bargained for, Aaron, but, but, but uh, the reason why profit and cash are different is threefold. First, we count revenue on the income statement when it is earned in most businesses. That means if you invoice it or if you're halfway through a project, you can count that as revenue even though you haven't collected a dime. On the other hand, if someone gives you a down payment on something and you haven't started work, that's not revenue either. For example, airlines actually get all the cash before they've earned any revenue because we pay for tickets before we fly right so so revenue and cash don't correlate also a lot of our cash is spent on equipment to run a business and since we depreciate the equipment over several years we can have lots of profit but our cash is gone when we bought that airplane to start our airline and then finally a lot of our expenses on our statements are expense before we pay them they're accrued or their bills that we haven't paid for our suppliers. So when you put all that together, cash and profit rarely match one another. Now I learned about the importance of cash and profit after leaving Ford. I took a job as the assistant to the CFO in a small uh, manufacturing company that was privately owned. And I thought it was the coolest job because as a, you know, 3 or 4 years out of college, I was working with the CFO and learning what a CFO did. Uh the reality was I was just running errands for the CFO, but it was all good. <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and everything was, was great for about four or five months and then one day the banker called and the CFO was on vacation so the receptionist ran back to my area in this in this uh you know 120 employee small company and said hey Joe you're the assistant to the CFO could you take the call from the banker and I thought wow this is a great ex- opportunity for me to you know talk to a banker and do some real business so this banker gets on the phone and she says hi Joe I'm the you know I I am uh, I'm the banker for uh uh for your company and you know you're aware of that and and I have a very simple question. Um, today's Thursday afternoon, tomorrow's payroll, and you have no money in your checking account with us, and your credit line is completely maxed out. And I was wondering how you guys cover, plan to cover payroll.
3: Ooh, my gosh. I remember gosh. sitting on the
4: phone. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Yikes. sitting on the phone thinking, uh, I don't remember this problem when I worked at Ford. <laughs> so <laughs> That was the first time I thought maybe small business wasn't as cool as I thought it was. mm mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I brilliantly said, can I call you back?
2: Perfect. And I went
4: and scrambled and talked to people, talked to the CEO who was there. We called the CFO, and, and surprisingly, he wasn't available on his cell phone, probably out of range golfing. So uh, to make a long story short, I got into the balance sheet, which is one of those statements we look at, and I looked at an account called accounts receivable, which is money that's owed to us by our customers, things that we build and count it as revenue usually, but we have not yet collected. And it turns out a large local client owed us the money to cover payroll, so I called them up and I said, "Hey, uh, I'm a new guy in finance here. You don't know me yet, but I was wondering how you're coming on that that uh, invoice you owe us." And it was just slightly overdue, and uh, and you know they they said uh, what did they say? Of course they said uh, the check is in the mail. I said, "Oh, that's great. Give me the amount and the check number." So I hung up and I thought I've got this problem solved. So I called back the banker and I say you know what, you, you, I've got really good news for you. I just called a big local client, a very reputable company that owes us money, and they said the check to cover our payroll is already in the mail. You could hear her laughing on the phone almost. Like,
3: you are a young <laughs> kid, Yeah, you? right. Because I've heard the check is in the mail. So, that that anyway. check, she was not thinking, oh, good, free cash flow. She was no, uh, she was, it was. like there was, was a lot cheating. of uh, theoretical. That was still a theoretical. That's
4: though. exactly right. She's thinking, okay, this guy's playing EBITDA on me. <laughs>
3: right. Yeah, There. Anyway,
4: that's not going to, you know, my employees can't go buy Whoppers without checking the mail. Anyway, so uh, the very interesting thing, and this is where it gets kind of personal, is that uh, they probably heard the, the fear in my voice when I called this, uh, this, this company. And so, the, you know, I went home very nervous, not knowing what to do, and, and the banker right before the end of the day, or, or the first thing in the morning said, you know what, I've thought about your situation. I know you're going to do payroll, you said, at 10 o'clock. And, uh, and what I'll do for you is I will cover your payroll and go over the credit line. But when that check shows up from, the, from that client, I want you to deposit it in our bank immediately because I'm going out on a limb for you. And you tell the CFO the next time this happens, uh, the chief financial officer, that this that, that I will not cover and you guys will bounce your payroll. And, uh, and so I said, thank you, thank you. Well, right after I hung up the phone about 8.30 or 9, a courier delivers a check. So obviously, this company knew that I was in trouble, or heard the, the fear in my voice, even though I tried to hide it, <laughs> yeah. and sent the check out. So yeah. I raced to the bank as I promised I would, and got there at 10 a.m. And when I got there, the bank door had not quite opened. They opening at 10 in this, this uh, industrial area. It was a small branch, and I noticed there's 14 people lined up outside this bank. And I, I think, what is this? A run on the bank? Maybe they're in trouble. And then I look at the people in line, and what do I notice? They are all employees at my company Mm. and I thought to myself what are they doing in line so I just go and get in line and the guy in front of me who was an engineer in this company said hey look this is aren't you Joe and I go yeah He goes, you're the new finance guy that works with the CFO right I go yeah so he yelled at everybody else in line hey look even the finance guys in line now and they all started laughing now I was smart enough not to say hey you guys might want to let me to the front of the line because I have the check to cover payroll in my pocket that I'm going to deposit Uh (laughs) I kept that quiet but what he said was very interesting, and this, this is crossing over into personal. He said, this company seems to be in trouble, and a lot of us are very nervous about the way management acts and the way we, uh, we we are delaying our payment to our suppliers. And even though we don't know the financials, we're worried about the cash position of this company. So a group of us, we got off a direct deposit, and what we do is we get actual checks on Friday morning on, pay, on payday, which was every two weeks. And then we take our 10 o'clock break, and we drive down to this bank, And what I do is I cash my check. I literally get cash, and then I drive to my credit union, which is a couple miles away, and deposit that cash in my credit union checking account. And here's Mm -hmm. the kicker. This is when I learned that cash is king in a small business. He said, that way, if I can't cash my check on Friday morning at 10 a.m., I can start looking for a new job and quit Mm -hmm. wasting my time at this company. And I thought, when your employees scatter to the wind because they couldn't cash their payroll checks, that is when you shut the doors that's
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the, the thing that strikes me about your story obviously is the application for business and how important it is to know. But it also strikes me that there's a personal tie in here with the credit picture that we've seen and people depending on credit and not cash or having easy access, easier access to credit and not cash and the importance of having the cash.
4: Okay. Oh, there's no question about it. You know, one thing that's very interesting and is is uh it's hard for people to understand it's is uh when you're a private company or when you have your own cash, um really the best philosophy uh you know with with uh a few exceptions this is a little bit of my opinion is to minimize or control your debt and try to and try to save. Yeah. However, in large corporations especially public large corporations, but even private ones, it makes a lot of sense to use a lot of debt to finance your business. Mm-hmm. And so the mentality of using debt is very much a corporate America mentality, and yeah. I, I think sometimes that spills over into business. Um, why does it make sense to use debt in a large corporation? Well, it's very simple. When someone invests in a company, they want about a 10 to even 20 or 30% return depending on the risk in that business. However, if you have the collateral and the ability to get a loan, you can borrow money for a business, at near prime rate which today is three or four percent right so a cheaper form of financing mm-hmm. however you know in your personal life using debt creates burden and it creates yeah. a challenge and that's true for small business owners as well right. so understanding the benefits of leverage for an individual versus a business are very different and I think sometimes because we see these big corporations taking on debt and and kind of buying what they need and running their business, we think we can run our personal lives that way. And I think it's kind of a dichotomy. And, and I know a lot of people that are very conservative financially that don't understand why their corporation would take on debt when I'm training them and teaching them. And, I, I you know, the, you need to distinguish the two organizations, the two operations. Yeah,
2: that's absolutely right. You know, the other thing that comes up, I got, I, and I'm going to bring in a question here, um, which is being offered stock, Instead of salary, you know, we've seen it in a lot of the startups that have have gone just hugely successful in Silicon Valley. And I had a question the other day from a colleague's son, who was offered an uh, "quote unquote" opportunity, and the the offer was for 100% no no salary, but 100%. Uh, stock option, and he didn't really know how to assess that. We have a few minutes until we're going to break. Can, can we start to to can I start to get your thoughts on that?
4: Sure. Um, uh, well, a couple of things first first very very briefly. Um, stock options are much less popular today than they once were, and that's mm-hmm. primarily because about eight years ago, the generally accepted accounting principles were changed and if you offer stock options and you're audited you have to you have to estimate the value of those options and consider them an expense for the employee as mm, though it's okay. part of their salary it used mm. to be you didn't even have to do that so options were used as a freebie for companies but the the challenge with someone doing that is they need to understand the metrics that drive value in a company i like to say there's five key numbers and a company that's offering you stock with no compensation is probably a startup company and it's hard, it's going to be hard to understand their metrics today. So you would have to get financial projections and take those projections and compare them to the five key metrics and, and then you'd have to get into an issue where what is the value of this business relative to the number of stock options outstanding so that you could get some relative value as to how much your stock options would be worth relative to the potential of the company going forward. There are a lot so, of small startups. If they get a lot of people and offer millions of stock options, they'll never be worth very much because the company just can't get big enough to support it.
2: Yeah, so the first question is let me take a look at your projections.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the second the second uh, question would be, uh, well, the second thing would be to look at the five metrics. The first of the five, and this is true for a public or private company, is how large is your revenue? We measure companies by revenue size. So how quickly can we grow revenue? And, uh, you know, let's say my plan is to be out of this company or to have my stock options vested in five years. Five years from now, what do we think our revenue will be? And, you know, if you want to be a a, a hardcore finance guy like me and you're talking to an entrepreneur with a new business, we usually talk about the, the, uh, you know, the half-half rule what you do is you cut the, cut all the projections in half, and then you cut the margins in half and see if the numbers still work. <laughs> so what I'm saying is the projections tend to be optimistic. So yeah. you, you want to say, does this still make sense if I cut the margin in half, the percentage of return in half, and the, the revenue in half? Perfect. Um, uh, we're gonna have, and, yeah, Joe, we're going to have to take a
2: break. So let's pick this up on the other side because I think it's sure. a, good, a good follow-up. But we're going to take a break. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host, Brian Farr, and our guest, Joe Knight, we're talking about financial intelligence. We'd love to hear from you. Please call 866-472-5790 or email us at moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Thanks so much. We're always talking business.
4: Talk to an expert.
2: Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfar.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com.
4: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host, Brian Farr. And our guest today, Joe Knight, and today we're talking about financial intelligence. And Joe, before the break, you were talking about the five things that you had gone through, number one of the five things that people should look about to assess the health of their companies. What are the other four?
4: The other four are, uh, first, earnings per share, and that's a, a number that's presented by public companies often, but it's very important if you if you have stock options because earnings per share is one of the key metrics we use to value stock. And we value it in a ratio called the price-to-earnings ratio. So let's just say that a typical stock has a price-to-earnings ratio of 20. So if your earnings per share five years from now is $1, then, then uh, if it's a typical stock, you might be able to get about $20 a share for that stock. So understanding what the projection on the earnings per share is um, – is very important because that will help you understand what kind of stock valuation you get in the future to figure out if these stock options are worth it. Then, right. or, or any stock is worth it. Number three uh, would be free cash flow. We talked about that. And that's a simple number that comes from the cash flow statement. You take your operating cash flow and subtract from it the money you spend on new capital to sustain the business. Warren Buffett would call it whopper money. Wall Street yeah. calls it free cash flow. Yeah. And then, And then fourth would be a a ratio that uh, we call EBITDA. And that stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I mentioned that it's not as important as it used to be, but it's still one of the key numbers we use to value a business. And in fact, it's one of the first numbers that are used by private equity and investors to value businesses. Companies are valued, especially private ones, by multiples of EBITDA. And then finally, some kind of return on equity or return on capital. For finance-based businesses or for high-growth businesses, return on equity, that's percentage return for the amount of equity invested in the business, is a critical number and should be well above 10%. Uh, and then for a, a big industrial company, you might look at total capital, which would be the return relative to the debt and equity that the company carries, the interest-bearing debt. So those five metrics are the ones I would look at to get a good feel for a stock option.
2: Yeah, and I will point out, that just as you said, that there's nothing more complicated in figuring any of those out than adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing.
4: Yeah, and, and really, I don't think multiplying is going to come up. You got to add, subtract, and divide on those anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs>
2: anyway. absolutely, absolutely. Well, for yeah, so um, I have a question here from a uh, it says I work for a private consulting. Practice. This is my first professional job. I'm in my late twenties. People are quitting and not being replaced and I'm hearing we may not get bonuses. What financial information should I concentrate on to assess the health of the partnership and how do I get it? This is a private partnership.
4: Well, well, first of all, uh, a lot of private companies just don't share information and, and uh, probably more than, you know, more than half. However, if you're a trusted internal employee and you offer to sign a non-disclosure saying, I will not disclose this information, a lot of the fear of sharing numbers is is the owners don't want competitors to find out and they don't want potential employees or other you know, people coming into the organization to find out details about the financials. So you'd have to offer to find it, sign a non-disclosure, tell them you're concerned about the situation and you'd like to understand the numbers. Now, the second thing I would say in that situation is, I think I can help you solve your problem and impact the numbers in a positive way if I understand where we make money, how we make money, and how I can help you drive your income statement and your cash flow in a positive direction. So those are the kinds of things I've tried. I would try, having said all of that, some employers just aren't comfortable sharing information. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. And how about if somebody works for a public company?
4: Um, In a public company, it's it's very much the same. However, those five metrics I mentioned – you can actually just look up almost right off the co- computer, actually every one of them right off the computer, going to Yahoo Finance or Google Finance. So you can right. look up the general numbers. What I, if I was in a public company, I would ask for division data and inside data. Now, again, um, there, some, people are little, some companies are reticent about that, but I'm finding that public companies are more open to sharing their managerial, which we, or managerial accounting, which is internal reporting, to employees. If they express a need for that uh, to do a better job and to understand what's happening in their division or their specific area.
2: All right. Would uh, financial intelligence have helped if I was a client of Bernie Madoff's?
4: Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't. I, I don't know the. De- you know, I know a little bit about the case or other cases I've studied more extensively. But um, you know, one of the one of the fundamentals of finance is, is it too good to be true, and and it was. But I. I think that uh, if people had asked more questions and had looked at the metrics of what was happening, uh, you know, I'd have to look at the statement and understand it better. But I think you can smell that. I, I always, uh, I I, ten, I believe that Wall Street and investors tend to focus on one metric, and they don't look holistically at statements. Um, so today the metric is free cash flow. Five, ten years ago it was EBITDA. If you want one number to look good as an as an organization. You can you can make it look good. But if you want to look at the five numbers or more metrics and ratios, it's very difficult to uh report inaccurately five numbers. And so you need to look at companies more holistically and instead of looking at, wow, the EBIT is strong, this company might be great or, or that sort of thing. So you need to understand we need to look at the balance sheet and understand some of the accounts. What kind of debt does the company have? We need to understand the margins. And we need to understand the income statement and whether the profitability is a good number relative to competitors. And then finally, we need to make sure that the profit is converting to cash, and that there's cash coming out of the business. If you look at all those things, I think you can get a good picture of what a business is is like. if If you have a situation where you' you have an investor that's continually getting better returns in the market over and over again, um, you you'd have to question that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know those are the kinds of things I would talk about or look at. Um, certainly, When Enron blew up, which I've looked at very closely, everyone was so focused on EBITDA, all Enron did was manipulate their statements so that their EBITDA looked great. Mm -hmm. And and cash flow wasn't good. The other metrics weren't good at all. Their debt was bad, uh, too high. But everyone was so focused on Wall Street and everywhere else on this number EBITDA that they were able to manipulate that number and forget about other parts of the statement.
3: Joe, this is really helpful. Um, I, the, this this idea that there are five things, because the, I, I think what happens is that people want to look at one thing because that seems simple, and they're afraid they're going to have to look at twenty or thirty things, and that's way too complex. But what you're telling us is if you if if investors were to focus on these five items, um, the, the holistic, you you would get an overall picture of, of the health of a company. And that, I just think that's going to be really helpful. Let me read a quick email because I think it fits right in here. Karen says, I have a question about quarterly and annual reports that I get from various investments I have made. I don't know what I should be focusing on in these statements. I certainly don't have time to read all the reports. Could you give us, could you give me some suggestions?
4: Yeah, and, and uh, that's a great question that Karen uh, puts forward. And, and what I would what I would suggest is is what I just came to. I would mm-hmm. go to those companies, and instead of going through the annual report and reading all the detail, I would go right to one of these websites and look at and look for those five numbers. What kind mm-hmm. of return are you getting on your equity? And, and and now one thing about those numbers is not only do you have to look at the numbers, but the numbers should be growing over time. So mm-hmm. your revenue should grow. If you're investing in a public company and you're getting annual reports on it, one of the first things that you want is is the revenue to grow. We consider the size of a business, it's total revenue. If the revenue is not growing, then in theory, your shares aren't going to grow. So Mm -hmm. revenue growth, your earnings per share should be strong and should be growing, and it should be growing with a word we call organically, growing from within. That's something you can can see right in the front part of a press release. Okay. Um, and so what I would say is instead of reading those statements and going through the reports, check those five numbers and, mm-hmm. uh, and see if they're all robust and growing. If four out of the five aren't very good, chances are the stock is not going to appreciate.
3: Okay. Now, one one of the things we talked about before we got on the air this morning was a website that you've got called FinanceDog.com. Would yes. FinanceDog help people who want to follow up on this and learn more about these five um, five numbers to focus on
4: yes it, it, if you if you uh yes it would it would it would explain those and explain other things we have a you know we have a little segment on ebitda and other things we have some definitions on on uh, some of the acronyms you see in finance and that sort of thing it's a it's a, a pretty simple easy to manage site and you okay. know another thing i didn't mention is that site also has seven questions from our financial assessment that we did in 2009 and uh, you can kind of test your financial literacy. Um, okay. One of the things that happened to us, Brian, is is uh, in our business, in our training businesses, is people would get our book, Financial Intelligence, especially a CFO or an executive, and they'd read it, and they'd say, "Joe, we love your approach. We like the stories. We like what Karen you have done with this book. Um, is there? A, but but it's too simple." We don't want the basics. We want to go to a higher level. So we'd like our, you know, and, and, and I always say every time, I've been training long enough to know that your direct reports, even if they're at the highest level of a large company, and, and I work with a lot, of, a lot of the largest companies in the Fortune 100, um, they don't understand finance like you think they do. And we yeah. got so tired of this argument that we developed a simple 22-question true-false multiple-choice financial assessment on basic financial concepts, and we did a national study on that, um, and, uh, and the average score in the United States for companies with at least 150 employees, and we went to the management level and above, above supervisor, we went to management and above, and we included finance and accounting in our sample. We didn't try to filter that out, so the finance and accounting folks were involved in the survey. Um, and, we again, we had an independent university do, do the test for us after we vetted the questions, and the average score in the United States was 38%. Also, that is slightly better than guessing.
2: So and 38% we, of the people answered more than 50%, right?
4: No, their average score was 38%. So their
2: average, average score was oh 38%, which okay. is but pretty incredible. So these were these were large companies, right?
4: Very large companies. I mean, yeah. well, it was every it was a national study. Now, to take another step, what what we did after we validated the test and got the 38%, and by the way for anyone interested, the results of that were published in a, in a forethought article in the Harvard Business Review in October of 2009. Mm-hmm. Harvard, my publisher, was so stunned by this result, Harvard Business uh, mm-hmm. Business uh, School Press, yes. yeah. that they they asked us to do a little article on it, and we published the results. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. got to remember, this is a true-false multiple-choice test, so 38% is slightly better than guessing, yeah. and that was average. Right. Yeah. Um, so now what we do is when we get that from an executive, we say, let's have your team take the test. And the highest yeah. scores yeah. we get in some of these major corporations is in the low 60s. Yep. And yeah. the average score yep. is about 40. comes right back to the average. And we've had some very senior groups in very large public companies take these tests, and no group has scored better than 60% on the test. And, yeah, which is and I, just, stunning. Yeah. Yeah, it's stunning, but it also illustrates a point, and that is that financial literacy and understanding or I should say financial intelligence and being financially intelligent as an executive even is something that is needed in corporate America.
2: Absolutely. And it's, you know, it spills over into personal finance as well. Well, I'm sad to say, Joe, that we have come to the end of our hour. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention your website, business-literacy.com and this site that Brian referenced financedog.com which has lots of resources and definitions for you and a third website is setpointusa.com which is the corporate website for Joe's company
4: right take a look at, yeah, and- take a
2: look at his
4: books go ahead yeah i just going to mention we have another book that we published a year and a half ago called project management for profit that describes our system for tracking our financials weekly on a project-based company that's available through Amazon, as Perfect. is our main book. And and you mentioned the graphic novel. People yes. can access that graphic novel that we've done, uh, which has been very successful. We're selling it ourselves through our website, if you request it, through our website, business-literacy.com.
2: Well, Joe, I, I highly recommend the comic book it makes financial intelligence even more fun. And Joe, I wanna thank you very much for joining us today. This has really been terrific. Joe Knight on financial intelligence. And next week, yeah, next week on the 20th, our guest is Joan DeFuria, who is the co-author of Affluence Intelligence and co-founder of Money, Meaning, and Choices Institutes in Marin County, California. We'll learn from Joan how to measure our affluence intelligence quotient and how to use the results to help money
3: serve us in our lives.
2: Please join us. Until then, I'm Ann
3: Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. And let's keep this conversation going because you have money in your life.
1: Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.